This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. Hello, aviators, and welcome to the Flight Time Series by Hangar Talk and Flight Training Magazine, where we bring you the exciting world of aviation. Each show, we will revisit a popular Hangar Talk interview for the flight training audience. I'm Jennifer Nahn, Senior Manager of Media Relations and Public Affairs at AOPA. When you're learning to fly, there are dozens of options of great books, videos, and courses to choose from. Rod Machado rises above as one of the best. Rod uses humor to convey difficult concepts, and his targeted creative ideas to overcome challenges have delighted students for years. AOPA senior content producer Ian Twombly caught up with Rod to talk about what makes a great instructor, Rod's early days of teaching and giving speeches, and much more. Flight Time is brought to you by AOPA. Go to AOPA.org for more information, and if you're not a member, make sure to click that Join button while you're there. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. All right, Ian, take it away. Rod, thank you uh, so much for joining us. I, I appreciate it. Obviously, we've worked together for a number of years, but uh, it's really nice just to step back and, and talk a little bit. So I'm, I'm excited. Oh, me too, Ian. A- absolutely. And you know how much I enjoyed working with you over the years. So uh, uh, it's one of the reasons why I was excited about doing this uh, this podcast with you. Good. Thanks. Okay. So help help me orient everybody. Where'd you grow up? Um, how'd, you, how'd you get into flying? Are you one of these airport kids or was it later in life or how did that work? Yes, actually, um, I was uh, uh, an airport kid, uh, not because I was abandoned by my parents, uh, although my grandfather did... Uh, did uh, I saw him erasing my name on my birth certificate one time? He kind of gave me suspicions, but uh, yeah, right. any, anyway, uh, no, I grew up in uh, Northern California and uh, I um, learned to fly to uh, Amelia Reed Aviation in uh, at Reed Hill View Airport, uh, right near San Jose in the Bay Area. And that was I, it was in 1970 that uh, I started hanging out at the airport. Of course, like anybody else, I was when I was young, I, I the uh, airplanes would fly over and I'd, I'd hop off the uh, the dinner table seat and run outside and point up in the air, airplane, airplane. And uh, that was, that was always, I do the same thing now, except, except I put pants on before I oh, actually, that's, that's good. There. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, my neighbors are very happy about <laughs> good. that. Yeah, that's good. And, uh, but then, you know, I obtained my private pilot license in high school and then 
in my teens, uh, had the uh, commercial license, and then I began instructing, and then I worked my way through uh, through college doing uh, uh, teaching people how to fly. And uh, then I started doing. I had the great fortune to be uh, involved in teaching accelerated ground training at John Wayne Airport. Uh, I moved from Northern California to Southern California in about the late 1973, and uh, I did uh, ground training as I was flight instructing, and that allowed me to sort of polish my skills at communication. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when you're talking to people in three days and you have to teach them, you're basically giving them 35 hours of, of ground training and uh, you're accelerating the training. And when you say something and they sit there looking at you like a dog looking at a fan, then uh, you realize you have to develop a different way of saying something or at least um, you know be able to clarify what you say. So um, I developed a lot of useful teaching tools and for me in terms of uh, variable explanations, but it really did, uh, um, I'll tell you what, teaching that type of ground school is, is worth uh, is worth a year of graduate school in psychology in mm. terms of your ability to, to communicate and uh, modify behavior. So it was very valuable for me. And then I worked with uh, AOPA starting in, uh, if you can believe this, 1978, I started wow. teaching safety seminars and one of the first uh, flight instructor clinics. And then I, I did that all the way up through the mid 80s. And then, uh, you know, my background's in psychology. So I went out and uh, did a lot of non-aviation speaking for businesses, doctors, lawyers, uh, bankers, and what have you. And uh, I realized one of the one of the great epiphanies in my life that everything I wanted to learn about life, I could learn in an airplane. And uh, that was a truly wonderful experience for me because I was always even though I was still flat instructing, I was always wondering, yeah, maybe there's something else to be learned by being away from the airport. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and by that, I mean in terms of most important things you learn in life and where you acquire your wisdom. Yeah. And uh, I realized that wasn't the case. You can learn everything you want to know about life by teaching people to fly, by being associated with pilots uh, in some way, shape, or form. And uh, so since 1990, it's been full-time in aviation for me and uh, very fortunate to have... Uh, written for AOPA for 18 years, and I think it was Flight Training Magazine for 25, 26 years, something yeah. like that. Wow. So wonderful, wonderful experience for me. It's just, I've been very, very blessed by doing that. And I will say this, this one of the neat things that happened to me when I was a kid was uh, I, Amelia Reed, one of the neatest ladies that I, I've ever had a chance to meet who ran the flight school at uh, Retail View Airport. Uh, I must have sat on her doorstep for two or three weeks uh, just uh, bugging her about a, a job. I wanted a job pumping gas. And she finally hired me because she knew I was motivated. Cause, you know, I, and I was a good gas boy because I could get like 50 gallons of gas in a 40-gallon tank. Oh, that's so magic. I had that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I had that skill. Good for business, yeah. bad for pilots. But <laughs> anyway, I improved my technique and uh, managed to get the exact quantity and as appropriate. But huh. anyway, so that's what happened in uh, aviation. It's just, a, it, it's just a fun place to be. And I might also add, too, that in uh, 1989, I wrote, uh, I wrote my first book okay. on the Instrument Pilot Travel Guide. And since then, I've written seven more and now have videos um, and uh, many videos. But now I do e-learning courses that uh, uh, pilots find very valuable. Just finished one course that's a six-hour course on handling in-flight emergencies, most common emergencies that uh, pilots might experience. And, you know, a chance favors the prepared mind, so it's unlikely a pilot would ever have any one of these emergencies. In-flight fire, gear doesn't come down, electrical fire, petroleum-based fire, elevator malfunction, and so on. But um, the course does cover that. So 
those are many of the things I talked about, by the way, in safety seminars and uh, flight instructor clinics. Hmm. Let me, uh, you know, I want, I want, I do want to talk about a lot of the courses and everything else, but I, I, you said something that, that struck me, you, you know, that basically you hung out on the doorstep and uh, begged for a job. And I think there's lots of talk in aviation about, oh, kids don't care about flying and they're not willing to do the work and everything else. And I mean, having, having gone that path, um, how do you see it? What do you think? I mean, are those opportunities still available for, for people who want them? Uh, well, structurally, no, uh, not like they used to be. You, it's very, and I say no, and let, and let me qualify that. It's very difficult to walk out onto an airport uh, as a young person, uh, you know, any any reasonable size airport, uh, and not be shadowed by the gendarmes and yeah. uh, by the TSA and the secret police. And uh, that's, but that's just the way the world is nowadays. And so it's very, very difficult. However, however, there's one function of human nature that never changes. And that is when a when an older person sees a younger person who has interest in uh, in general aviation, that that older person's you know, you you would call it the the parental nature of that individual um, tends to want to do something to help the younger person. So my recommendation is if any younger person wants to get involved in aviation, and since it's unlikely you're going to be able to find your way out onto a reasonable size airport, not a small one, but a reasonable size airport, if that's assuming that's where this young person lives, near a reasonable size airport, my recommendation, just as a general one, is to get involved, is to make contact with folks who fly airplanes. In other words, attend an EAA meeting, attend uh, an AOPA safety seminar, attend many of the FAA's wonderful safety seminar programs, and stick out your hand and make a friend in aviation. You make a friend with somebody that that, uh, lives nearby, that owns an airplane or flies an airplane, you will will, uh, create such great favor and inspire older people to want to do what they do best, and that is to help teach younger people about things they know. Hmm. So it's a great way to get involved in aviation. One of the best kept secrets um, that uh, we we, uh, we don't talk about, you know, nowadays you can't, it's as if you don't want your younger person talking to an older person. And when they do, uh, the younger person yells out, uh, stranger danger, stranger danger. Right. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, um, and by the way, if you're ever going to run out, use stranger danger, um, I'm waiting for the time when I can use that at my advanced age. Uh, and I'll, I think I'll use it during a ramp check. Yeah. An FA shows up, stranger danger. Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure it'll have the same effect. No. But for young, <laughs> yes, for young people, though, uh, making a friend in aviation by attending any of the local um, EAA, FA, AOPA, any of these programs, what a great way to, to get to get into have airport access uh, to make a friend to get flight time to get the experience it is a great way to do it and people mm. don't do that very much so that would be my recommendation mm. okay interesting now you you mentioned you know you've done obviously some writing and now you've uh, written the books and created the courses um, obviously you have enough experience and you've met enough people that you could fly professionally for a living you could have all this time I suppose why did you decide to stick with the the flight instruction and the the knowledge route well, um, you, you know, I, again, I started flying in 1970, uh, and uh, there about 73, 74, I, I uh, was was focused on becoming. I wanted to become an airline pilot. That's what I wanted to do. So, in 1976, I uh, was 23. I had my ATP, and um, I was I had about 2,500 hours of flying time. And at that time, I just instructed. 
uh, quite a bit um, in the uh, early 1970s. One year building 1,240 hours. Wow. So I, I so that much time in one year, it's still a great deal of time. Yeah. But so I became airline qualified. Well, no, let me put it this way. I became qualified to obtain the ATP, and I did. Hmm. And then I was interviewed by United Airlines in 1976. And they uh, they realized that, you know, I, I had 2,500 hours of uh of a single engine time. And, you know, of course, that made me their man. It should have made me their man because if the airplane lost an engine and there was only one left, you know, I'm the guy that's qualified to fly on one engine. Okay. I, see, it, I see where you're going with this. That's good. All that, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so they, they did not hire me. And, of course, I, I can't blame them for not. I just didn't have a lot of multi-time, didn't have any turbine time. And so consequently, uh, that's when I got involved in teaching ground school and realized that um, – for for me, teaching ground school, doing flight training, and involved in that educational level, writing books and developing educational material, I just much more enjoyed that. That was that was that was my calling. That's what I wanted to do, and I have not regretted any moment of that. And there were opportunities where I could fly for a living after uh, 1976. In other words, fly for a corporation and then fly for an airline. It's just not something I wanted to do. But it's it, it would have been a great job, no doubt about it. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm interested in this idea that people feel, obviously they feel the draw to the airlines. I mean, a lot of people, it seems like a natural progression, but, um, and, and there was always talk about flight instructing is not a career, it's a, it's a springboard, but you've made a career of it as, as have many others. And it seems sure. to me that if you're, uh, if you stay busy, if you're active and if you're good at it, uh, then you have every reasonable expectation that it could be a career. Everything that you said is absolutely true, and uh, I made good money as a flight instructor, and I'll, I'll tell you how I did it. Um, number one, it, 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 you have to run it like a business. Um, I, let me just let me qualify that. Number one, you have to be in a place where there is business. All right. Mm, so if yeah. you're out in the in uh, uh, let's say um, Bob's uh, log cabin airport, uh, there is no such airport there. Uh, then, <laughs> so if you're at that airport, you're not going to get that kind of business. But in many major metropolitan airports, um, or you know reasonable sized airports, there's the potential for that kind of flight training business. And what I did, uh, Ian, um, and not because you know I'm so smart, I just always associated with people that had extra skills, extra insights, and you know, that's how you learn. And so I learned from them. And then, of course, I colored that based on my own experience, too. What I realized was, uh, if I were going to make a living at this, at that time, I think in the 1980s, I was charging $35 an hour, which was top dollar yeah. for uh, instructors at that time. And what I would do is I would sign, uh, I would work with a student, but the student had to commit uh, to fly two lessons a week. And each lesson consisted of two hours. And uh, I would fly with uh, students three lessons a day. So that's six hours of revenue time a day, six times 35. Let's just equate that to uh, $200 a day. And then I would fly six days a week. So $200 times six, that's $1,200 a week revenue time. And that ends up being uh, you know, close to $4,500 plus a month give or take, uh, for uh, flight training at that time. Now, what made, what allowed me to, in, to ensure that I had that kind of revenue, such as when the weather's bad, students don't fly? Well, I would just do ground training in, uh, in lieu of the actual flight training. The, the way that I made that work was I made the students sign a contract. And what, what wasn't a big contract, it was just a little contract. And that committal was important. The student had to cancel 24 hours in advance if the student couldn't make it. And of course, I wasn't 
rigid in terms of that implementation. But you have to be assured that you're going to have consistency um, if you're going to have a reliable income. So that's how I insured students would do that. Of course, I was a big softie, and I did let people slide, but not enough to really affect my revenue stream that, that much. Mm. And, um, and as a result, uh, you know, I think out of all the training I did, I, I only lost – well, I only had two students fail check rights. I want to be careful how I say that. I only had two <laughs> students fail check rights over, over the years, and um, the reputation that you develop was such that um, – uh, you know, people would come to you and ask you to train them. And the best kept secret for getting business as a flight instructor, and, and I don't quite understand why more flight instructors don't do that, do this, and that is to teach safety seminars in the FAA uh, fast team program. Yeah. In other words, teach FAA safety seminars, go out there, put your programs together, uh, see how other people do it, make your own program, do safety seminars, contribute to general aviation that way. And I did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those over the years. And uh, all for free. I, I just did them for free. I'd travel around, do them for free. Hmm. And so consequently, people would say, hey, that Rod Machado guy looks like a fun guy to fly with. And uh, they'd come, and I had more. They'd come and asked me for uh, my card, and I'd give it to them. I had more business that uh, I possibly could know what to uh, to do with, Ian. So it was it was really good. I was never short on a supply of students. Interesting. Huh. Um, what about humor? Obviously, that's a signature aspect of your presentations and your books and everything else. Have you always used it as, as part of teaching? Um, are you naturally, you know, are you the, the family stand-up comedian? I mean... How did uh, was it a conscious decision? Um, is this is this you? How did you get into that? Um, actually, I, no, I I'm not I'm not the family stand-up comedian. My grandfather was, <laughs> uh, which is why when I was young, he called me over and he said, "I want you to know something." He's a little Portuguese guy. He said, uh, "You you were adopted." He'd say that in a thick Portuguese accent. And I, I'd say, I, "I was adopted." He says, "Yes, yes, uh, but they brought you back." So uh, that. <laughs> That's my grandfather's humor. Yeah, I mean, he was. I had two grandfathers that were really wild. So in teaching ground school, see, you get me all excited talking about these things. In teaching ground school, um, the a fundamental aspect of teaching anybody anything is uh, to understand how to modify their behavior. It's called behavior modification. And since we know that learning is a relatively permanent change in behavior, and that is a, a motor skill, perceptual skill, or a cognitive skill, I'm teaching these cognitive skills, and I'm thinking, how can I get them to go from not knowing something to knowing something? So I had to reinforce that behavior. I have to get their attention. There's no better way to do that than to use humor. Now, the big misconception there, and this is a big misconception. People, people always get this, this wrong, and that is they think using humor is telling jokes. I don't really tell jokes. That is like believing, you know, believing that you have to tell jokes to use humor. is like believing that pre-ignition is the ability to see sparks from the future, and, uh, and that's just not true, well, pretty much. And so what I would do is, uh, using humor as a, as a teacher, as an instructor, is more properly defined by being playful. And that is such a powerful, powerful tool. Not being childish, but being childlike. And uh, that's what I did in class, uh, in teaching people how to fly. And in an airplane, I would just be very playful. And there's, as my dad once said, he told me, never let anybody mistake kindness for weakness. And so in being playful, it's easy for people to perhaps look at you and say, oh, gee, he's not serious about anything. But I knew exactly when to become serious. 
as necessitated by the situation. So um, I used humor a lot. And in order to find out how to do that in 1970, I think it was 1975, um, I started going to the uh, comedy clubs in Newport Beach, in uh, Seal oh, Beach, wow. no Los Angeles. Huh. No, and I didn't, no, I didn't do stand-up comedy. That's not what I did. What I did was I walked in with a pen uh, and notepad and uh, I started looking at what it was comedians were doing that allowed them to have that kind of connectivity with their audience. And it, it, the single most important conclusion I drew from that was that you could walk on stage, you could say the wildest, craziest things, and um, it, it, I mean, you could be controversial, you could, you could say uh, very, very strange things, but if the audience knew you were being playful, they never were threatened by you. And I bring the same thing to the cockpit. And of course, I do that because it's just, it's just a better way to, to teach. It's more fun for me. Yeah, that's fascinating. All right, so I want to get into a couple of uh, subjects I know you're passionate about. Talk to me about, you, you wrote a book uh, recently, one of your newer books, on essentially the essence of flying an airplane. I mean, there's lots of private pilot books and instrument flying books and a lot of sort of technical aspects but not since maybe stick and rudder have we seen something that's really dedicated to this idea of how do you how do you properly manipulate the controls and this whole aspect of of you know properly controlling the airplane so tell me about how that idea came about and why you think the book's important and um and why you're so passionate about it well I, I, again i i am passionate about uh, most things in aviation, in particular the stick and rudder concept, attitude instrument, or basic attitude flying concept. Stick and Rudder is an excellent book, one of my favorites, I might add. And uh, Wolfgang Lingavisha uh, had it right with almost everything he said. And that was back in the um, early 1940s. And um, Wolfgang Langevisha also said that uh, by 1952, airplanes would no longer have rudders. You know, he, he understood the concept of the air coupe. And get rid of the rudders, you essentially get rid of the spin problem. Because you can't spin an air coupe, primarily because you can't stall it. Yeah. And so, and I know, I've tried. It's just not possible to stall one of those things. With that, that concept in mind, he was, he was wrong on that, but he was right on everything else. The problem is that um, in World War II, you had pilots and instructors who had to teach stick, basic stick and rudder skills because there's no way you could fly a P-51, a P-38, or any of those aircraft without good stick and rudder skills because you would die. It's it's just like that, and that's why an instructor or a pilot could go from in nineteen uh, in the nineteen forties World War II go from flying a P fifty one and read the manual and hop in a P thirty eight or P thirty eight to P fifty one or T six or whatever the case may be, and uh, literally fly the airplane safely as long as they read the manual, of course, uh, because they had good attitude flying skills. So that's always been a, a very important thing for for me in my teaching. I was fortunate at Amelia Reed Aviation to learn in an L2 and be taught by people that were of that uh, that vintage and or that educational disposition, the World War II stick and rudder uh, flight training disposition. And it was a great education for me. But the problem is that over the years, the um, FAA's leadership and guidance has evolved from um, a, an awareness of basic stick and rudder skills to more of the airline process, airline philosophy of flying an airplane. 
And uh, that, uh, of course, as you know, you don't use rudders uh, on on big airliners, except, of course, in the landing environment for for crosswind correction and, and things like that. But so it's not something that is on the, the radar of most uh, people that are of that particular philosophy. And so we've seen an evolution, a cultural drift, perhaps better phrased, a pedagogical drift from the uh, basic stick and rudder concept of flying to the airline process of flying. And perhaps to make that, uh, to, to, to encapsulate that whole idea, um, there's one idea that expresses exactly where we are at now. There's nothing about flying a big airplane that pertains to flying a small one, but everything about flying a small airplane pertains to flying a big one. It's a generalization, but it's a very, very good generalization. And so consequently, uh, nowadays, we have the ACS. Let's take the commercial ACS. The commercial ACS that was just released by the FAA um, has a stall requirement, in other words, a stall demonstration requirement that exactly replicates the airline stall demonstration requirement. And in an airliner, you don't stall a swept wing jet, as an example, because uh, it's you know, no telling what will happen with a, a jet like that. It could, you know, perhaps it would roll inverted. I don't know. I don't fly big jets like that, but I, I have some knowledge of them. But it, you certainly can stall small airplanes. But anyway, the point is you don't stall a big jet, so consequently the uh, leadership of the FAA, and I say this with all due respect, um, I'm sure they're well-intentioned, but uh, I just think that they're wrong in how they approach this. You can get a commercial license now without having to physically stall an airplane because the commercial test only requires that a pilot recover at the first indication of the stall, which is the stall horn. So consequently, once you get the private license, which, by the way, does require a demonstration of a stall, once you get that, that will be probably the last time you ever have to demonstrate a stall uh, for any rating that you get after that. And uh, in other words, commercial instrument ATP. Um, So you have a situation now where uh, pilots going for the commercial license are going to stall an airplane recover at the stall, first indication of a stall, which is the stall horn, and not have perhaps any uh, current feel, uh, any uh, reasonable feel for what a stall is like. And here's the interesting problem with that. The reason it's important to stall an airplane is because you don't know, many people don't know what's going to happen when their airplane stalls. Because if they're slightly uncoordinated, the airplane may uh, roll, uh, have one wing stall before the other, roll into a uh, spin entry condition, and uh, unless they know, unless they recognize that, unless they have experience with that, and they've had experience enough to reinforce the techniques for recovery, they are going to be uh, helpless uh, by virtue of their ignorance. So that's why it's important for for all ratings, in my opinion, to demonstrate the ability to uh, physically stall an airplane and recover from the stall, not just at the private pilot level. And when people say, well, you know, flight instructors can teach, um, they can teach their commercial pilots anything they want. You know, they can teach them how to stall an airplane. Well, uh, In other words, refresh their knowledge of stalls. That's not what flight instructors do. Uh, That is a terribly naive understanding, in my opinion, of what the FAA's new stall requirement or non-stall requirement on the commercial ACS 
is going to lead to. It'll lead to eventually uh, commercial pilots having no experience beyond the private pilot certificate uh, and no current experience, of course, at what a stall is, uh, recovering from a stall, and the many very different conditions that stalls can lead to. So that's how, that's how I see it. I think it's a big mistake on the FA's part. Yeah. So it sounds similar to the... Um this idea in the private ACS with slow flight, where it's the FAA seems to be moving to this idea, not necessarily of demonstration of a full skill, but of acknowledgement of the warning signs and avoidance. You know, we've, yes. we've talked about slow flight in the past. They, they changed it a little bit with this new um, release, which I was surprised about. So if you could just describe to us the kind of what it, what it changed from and, and now what it is and, and what you think the implications to that are. The original private pilot PTS required a slow flight demonstration at three to five knots above stall. That was in the uh, original private pilot PTS, hmm. practical standard. And what that meant was that the stall horn was more than likely activated during the entire slow flight demonstration because stall horns are required by part 23 to activate a minimum of five knots uh, above the stall speed, assuming you know the conditions are such that it's a new stall horn and nothing's plugging the vent or or the stall light for that matter. Same thing. Mm-hmm. So um, you know that's that's the way it was supposed to work. So essentially, in slow flight, the student would be hearing the, the stall horn uh, during the entire slow flight maneuver. And the FAA said, well, that's not good because they're hearing the stall horn and they're not reacting to the stall horn as a an alert to recover. The good thing about stalling or uh, doing slow flight at um, the very slow speed of three to five knots above stall is that you are actually operating in the backside of the power curve. You actually have to get that low, about 10 to 12 percent above stall speed in order to be, uh, in order to move to the backside of the power curve. Yeah. And uh, if you don't do that, then you really don't understand that relationship of the region of reversed command. So the FA said, that's not good. We want students uh, to hear the stall horn and think, ah, or stall light, see the stall light. We want them to think recover. And the assumption is that if they hear the stall horn or see the stall light, they won't let the airplane stall. There, and I'll come back to that point in a second. But <clears throat> So what the FA said was, um, in the uh, private pilot ACS, we now want uh, pilots to do slow flight at, uh, first of all, slow the airplane down. This is what it says in the original uh, safety of flight alert that the FA proposed back in August of last year, the SAFO, called the slow flight SAFO. The FA said, we want you to slow down until you hear the stall horn and then note the speed and then uh, increase the speed by two knots to stop the stall horn, in other words, to eliminate it. And then uh, you can add uh, uh, 10 knots to that because the slow flight speed was zero to plus 10 knots above a reference speed. So essentially what you have is five, five knots above stall is when the stall horn comes on. You add two knots onto that, that's seven knots. And you're allowed to fly 10 knots above that uh, target speed. So that means you could fly 17 knots above stall speed and demonstrate your slow flight prowess uh, being nowhere in the region of reverse command. In fact, 17 knots above stall speed is typically around 32 to 35% 
of the stall speed. And we know that uh, 1.3 times VSO is the typical required or recommended approach speed for most airplanes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that even goes, that goes much lower for some airplanes, down to 1.22% uh, for certain short field procedures in some airplanes. So the, the point is that the student can demonstrate slow flight now and never experience the region of reverse command. And the FA said with the original private pilot ACS that came out uh, June of uh, last year, uh, if you heard the stall horn during slow flight, that might have resulted in a, uh, that could have resulted, depending on the DPE, in a failure because the FA said you should not hear the stall horn. They, they got it wrong wow. and they realized that, that was a mistake. So what, what did they change in the modification to the slow flight requirement this year? The modification says this, that if the, nothing else has changed in terms of the speed requirements, you still have to, you know, to identify your target speed, you slow the airplane down to, to you hear the stall horn, which is ironic in itself because the FAA doesn't want you to hear the stall horn yeah. without recovering. <laughs> slow the airplane down to stall speed, you hear the horn, add two knots onto that, so you're already seven knots above the air, a minimum of seven knots above the stall speed right there, and then you can add 10 knots onto that uh, as the higher end of the speed at which you can demonstrate slow flight. So that's 17 knots. That hasn't changed. Mm. What ha- and I predicted it wouldn't change uh, because there was, uh, I think the FAA had too much to lose, quite frankly, with uh, the philosophy they've adopted. That, that would have been a great contradiction if that changed. The only thing that has changed with the new private pilot ACS, uh, Ian, is that if you hear the stall horn, that doesn't result in an immediate failure. If you hear the stall horn, the FAA says you should uh, then take corrective procedures in order to uh, uh, eliminate the stall horn sound. Hey, that's good. I'm, I'm not complaining about that. Uh, my beef is with the fact that private and commercial ACS now will not require a, an applicant to demonstrate skill at flying on the uh, backside of the power curve. Hmm. And to me, that's a, that's a real shame. Yeah, I mean, what is slow flight if it's not flying on the backside of the power curve? Where else would you experience yeah. uh, flying on the backside of the power curve? Yeah. <clears throat> Guess where the FA says that you can gain the experience you need about the region of reversed command. Guess where they said you can get that? Uh, let me guess. Landings? Uh, stalls. Stalls, yeah. Yes, the FA says you can get that uh, during when you stall an airplane and in ground school. Well... Well, I can assure you that you're not going to get any reasonable experience, any uh, practical experience flying on the backside of the power curve as you're approaching a stall for the purpose of doing a stall. And uh, in ground school, you you can get all the academic knowledge you need, but uh, there's nothing more valuable than actually physically experiencing the backside of the power curve to make you a true believer in what that curve actually represents. So... Uh, the FAs, uh, again, I think their intent is to do good, and uh, their their motivation is noble, but uh, I think having good intentions is a highly overrated virtue. Uh, it's what you do that counts. So yeah. with all due respect to the FAA, uh, I, I think you know they want to do a good job. They're just, I think, misguided in the sense that um, airline procedures work great for airline pilots, but... General aviation flying, flying small airplanes, is an entirely different animal. And we know that 50% of our accidents, Ian, are uh, stick and rudder accidents. They are the inability to make an airplane do what the pilot wants it to do. In fact, Uh um, if you look at some studies, 
overall studies that physical-based errors represent upwards of 79% of all aviation accidents in totem. So consequently, it's, uh, it, it's the inability to fly an airplane properly that gets pilots into trouble. And so that needs to be focused on, in my opinion. And what could the FAA have done uh, that they, they didn't do? They could have taken the, uh, the ACS and applied it first to flight instructors, which would have been a more appropriate, uh, I think, uh, approach to uh, changing the way flight instructors teach. And, you know, I, I, I don't have a, a dog in the fight when it comes to the commercial instrument and flight instructor and ATP ACS. Yeah. You know, folks are smart enough to figure out whether they want to participate in that and do that or not. Private pilots don't have that option. And my real beef with the ACS for the private pilot was that it uh, it so complexifies obtaining a private pilot certificate that uh, I think what it's going to do is hinder the uh, participation in general aviation at the private pilot level. And, you know, we already know now that in the last 10 years, we've had a 20% reduction in flying time by pilots. We've had a, uh, I think it's uh, decreasing at about 1% per year in terms of the number of piston-powered aircraft uh, being flown. So the FAA's job is supposed to, uh, well, to uh, promote aviation, actually. In 1996, they changed that to encourage aviation. And uh, I would say they're really not doing the best job at it right now because uh, piston-powered airplanes, private pilot certificates, and private pilot flying are all on the decline. And while the uh, intent of the ACS is is good and noble, um, at the private pilot level, I think they made a very big mistake in making it much more complex for a person to obtain a private pilot license. Let me just give you an example. Um, a person who comes, you know, looks into flight training, picks up a copy of the ACS as compared to the uh, uh, the PTS, and of course the verb- verbiage is is when you look at this thing, it's about twice as long uh, in terms of the original ACS for yeah. the uh, private yeah, um, original PTS for the private pilot. And so uh, they look at that, and they become immediately intimidated by the number of things they think they have to learn. The risk management requirements of the private pilot ACS are, uh, you know, what do you say about this? Um, The risk, to demonstrate your knowledge of risk management, there are, you know, anywhere from seven to eight to nine, sometimes ten risk management items you've got to be able to respond to. You'll only be asked one for each task, but you have to have knowledge of all of them. And there's no direct source for that information. And let me let me let me clarify that. Hmm. Uh, risk management by the FAA's own definition is subjective. It has to be subjective. Your risk is not my risk. A student's risk is not your risk. It varies based on the the training and the experience of the individual. And when I sat with the FA psychologist at Sun and Fun uh, three years ago, the FA psychologist involved in helping create the risk management questions, I asked her, I, I said, are these sourced to a particular document? Because I expected the answer to be no, because they can't be sourced, uh, because you can't source a subjective value, subjective information um, in a document. And she said yes. And at that point, um, I realized how the sausage was made. I realized what these folks were doing here. They were increasing the subjectivity of the private pilot test 
probably lengthening the test and certainly intimidating people for what value, for what purpose. And the intent was on their part to make aviation safer. And get this, there's absolutely no proof, none whatsoever, that, uh, and, and, and even common sense doesn't suggest this, that asking people risk management questions that are highly subjective are going to have any uh, effect, overall effect on aviation safety. And when you compare that to the cost of asking those risk man management questions at the private pilot level, then you now have a loss for general aviation. And to sum this up, I'll just say this, the ACS with the risk management additions that they had for the, at the private pilot level would have been better served by providing that as a pamphlet free to all new private pilots that they can use to, to study with and guide their own study. But had the ACS been applied to the flight instructor at the very beginning of a student's training, the instructor would then uh, perhaps be cued in to better train his students on risk management awareness without having to increase the subjectivity of the private pilot test. I didn't even give you a chance to breathe and ask a question that I was, that I was blabbering on, but I just had to get that in there. Yeah, so. well, I know it's a, it's a subject you feel very strongly about, so um, it is... I I do. Yeah, and it is, it is pretty interesting. I mean, it's like I definitely get the intention of risk management and uh, trying to focus on that because I, I do think that you could make an argument for, you know, it's like you mentioned a lot of the, the accidents are skill-based and that's very true, but it's a lot of times it's, it's decisions that get people to those points where their skills can't, can't keep up with it. So I do think there's some value there, but I agree with you completely about the slow flight thing. And I, and it does seem like in a lot of cases, it's, it's, it is pretty extensive. Yeah. And, and Hey, listen, I'm a reasonable guy and there's some good in everything. There's, there's no doubt what you said is, is true. You know, you're, you, uh, you, you, hooked on that, you focused on that as a flight instructor, because you say, hey, yeah, there's some, there's some value here. I guess my, my uh, overall point was that what value might be there um, would have been better served by, uh, could have been accomplished and better served by focusing on the flight instructor ACS first, which you know, we won't have for a couple more years. Yeah. But I am, you know, again, I'm a reasonable guy. Yes, there is some value there, although I do have to uh, question how much of an increase in subjectivity the private pilot uh, flight check now has increased. Because one of the ACS questions is, and this is an actual question for risk management, it says, um, identify, ameliorate, ameliorate the risks associated with the airplane stall warning system. Well, first of all, <clears throat> physical products don't have risk inherent uh, as a result of the physical product's existence. Risk is associated with how you use that physical product. So it's a bad question in the first place, but uh, that is, uh, uh, that's neither here nor there. The fact is that when you look in FA documents, it's very difficult to find any explanation or example of how the airplane stall warning system can produce or create a certain amount of risk based on how it's used. As I say, this, these questions are not sourced in the sense that uh, they don't reference the subjectivity or the subjective value as it applies to the individual. And that's what makes this whole thing, uh, I think, very, very confusing and will make it confusing for many, many people. Uh, but, you know, hey, I hope I'm wrong. I absolutely do hope I'm wrong, Ian. But uh, 
my gut says that I, I won't be. And as a result, this may further contribute to the decline of general aviation. Uh, because if you don't have, if you don't support the private pilot level, you've got nothing. Yeah. All the hierarchical um, components of, 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 of aviation, commercial training, instrument training, ATP training, multi-engine, all that disappears if you don't have private pilots to begin with. Yeah. So yeah, you got to support them. Yeah. Yeah, and so my whole objective is to do two things. One, give the average person an opportunity to earn a private pilot license at a reasonable cost, and that's important. And number two, to do it without having to jump through too many government hoops. Hmm. And, uh, and and let me say one more thing about this, too. If the um, argument on the ACS with the ACS committee is, well, if we don't talk about risk management, they won't learn it. Well, for, you know, that's like believing that if you put hand lotion in your airplane's fuel tank, you'll make your landings smoother, softer, and younger looking. That, that's just – that is a big misconception. I'm going to try that, actually. I think that's yeah, a good I know idea. I've already tried. Yeah. yeah, I've already tried. Yeah. Works well. Oh, good, good. Or, yeah, as, as long as you're flying a glider, it yeah. works very, very well. But the, um, the the point there is, people say, well, how people how are people going to learn risk management? Well, if you have a good instructor, um, then you learn risk management in several ways. Number one, um, Richard Bem, Stanford University, said that our basic beliefs and values, our deepest value systems, occur based on uh, from whom we role model. In other words, those are our role models provide our deepest um, consistent values that we have consistently through life. Your flight instructor is the person uh, that is your role model. And therefore, with a good flight instructor, you have good values taught. Now, if you have a bad flight instructor, then you're not going to get that stuff, which is one of the reasons why I, wanted, I suggested working on the, the flight instructor ACS first, hmm. but uh, that wasn't to be. So the second thing is, how do you teach risk management, initial risk management about landing an airplane? First of all, you cannot teach people risk management uh, about something that they haven't actually done, perceived, or thought about. So consequently, um, it's, in other words, risk management in any meaningful way. The best way to learn risk management for initially for learning uh, as a private pilot certificate on a private pilot applicant is to go out and land in a crosswind, as an example. Yeah. And then yeah. you'll learn risk management in terms of handling crosswinds. Without that experience, then uh, all the academic pedagogical risk management knowledge means nothing. You've got to have practical experience. So you don't teach somebody calculus before you uh, teach them algebra, and you don't teach them algebra before you teach them adds, takeaways, times, and goes intos. Hmm. At the private pilot level, you teach the basics, you focus on the basics, and at, a, at the end of a private pilot um, curriculum, as has happened for a hundred and what, ten years now, uh, or so, at the end of that private pilot curriculum, private pilots, if they're taught well by their flight instructor, without any direct mention of risk management, have the basic risk management skills they need to continue to learn more about risk management. Because a private pilot license is a license to learn. It's not a license that says you have learned everything, as the FA would apparently like it to be. So I apologize once again. I am talking so much, and I'm feeling so bad. <laughs> no, no, it's good. Well, so I want to give you a chance, though, before we go to, you know, you mentioned that that you think supporting the private level is really critical, and so a lot of a lot of your stuff is actually geared towards that. So tell me what you're working on and what's coming down the pipe and, and where people can find you. Sure, 
and uh, before I do that, let me just mention this, and uh, and don't you dare cut this out. Um, this one of the things that's so unique about what you do in Flight Training Magazine is you've made the magazine a, a wonderful magazine, and anybody that's not getting that magazine uh, is being deprived of a great source of practical, useful knowledge. I'm talking about flight instructors, private commercial instrument students. They should get that magazine. So I get a subscription. It's extremely important in my opinion. Your leadership has also been uh, exemplary in that area too, Ian. I'm not just kissing up because you know I always do my kissing up right at the beginning of any podcast. So uh, I, I really, I really mean that you do. Uh, you do great work, and you, you have uh, in all my years of associating with you, you you're a uh, intellectually honest person and uh, a very clear and deep thinker about these issues. So uh, it's one of the reasons why I agreed to do this uh, podcast. Now on to answering the question. Thanks. And the question is, um, I have uh, the products that uh, I've designed. I've designed to be educational in terms of my books and e-learning courses, audio courses, and uh, and video courses, and also be educational through um, playfulness, a, a technique that people call edutainment. In other words, I have fun with all my products. You can take my private pilot handbook. It's 626 pages. You can read that and uh, learn all the basic knowledge you need to become the academic knowledge you need to become a, a private pilot and pass the knowledge exam. And guess what? You'll have fun doing it. Hmm. And uh, we even have... You know, people just don't read as much as they used to. But we even have 12-year-old children reading the book and enjoying it because it keeps their attention. Well, one of the reasons I moved into the uh, e-learning course program, uh, which uh, I now have, I think, seven e-learning courses and and developing more uh, uh, each month, the uh, reason is people like interactivity in their education. They like pictures. They like to look at things. They like to have things talk to them. Mm -hmm. So that's what I provide. And then I have audiobooks uh, too that are uh, available for people that want to learn while they drive. In other words, have a private pilot audiobook, an instrument audiobook, and a uh, how to fly an airplane audiobook. And these are essentially uh, almost unabridged uh, versions of my private pilot, how to fly airplane handbook, and instrument handbook. I say almost unabridged, certain things I, I don't put in there, like the table of contents. And things like that, but uh, certain things uh, I have to leave out by virtue of the relevance, but not much, only about three, four percent. So, and then the last course I developed is the e learning course on handling in flood emergencies, and it's six hours. And it's a, uh, it's basically the version of the course I, I took around the country in the early 1990s. I went all over the United States and uh, Europe, as a matter of fact, teaching that course. And it's a very popular course, and uh, it gives people a great deal of confidence in and uh, knowing that hey, if this happens in an airplane, then I've got to do this. For example, extreme vibration in an airplane. Anytime you experience extreme vibration, not a little, I'm talking about vibration that just knocks your wheel pants off or knocks the airplane's wheel pants off. There's one thing you have to do, and you have to do it instantaneously. You have to do it as quickly as you can, and that's pull the throttle back and apply a little uh, aft pressure on the elevator. Because there's only there are only three things that can cause that kind of vibration: a propeller blade fracture, uh, catastrophic engine failure, or flutter, divergent flutter. And those three things are all solved initially by pulling that throttle back as quick as you can. So those are the, I, I offer a lot of very handy, useful techniques and cover 
um, all the major emergencies and the lesser emergencies that a pilot could experience. And the intent is not to scare people. The intent is to uh, equip them with the knowledge to fly confidently. Hmm. And it's rare that any emergency is ever going to happen in an airplane. So, But when it does, it's nice to know what to do. That's great. That's great. All right, Rod. Well, thanks again for spending the time, and uh, we'll, we'll see you at the air shows, I guess. I look forward to it, Ian. And uh, again, it's a real pleasure uh, talking with you. Th- thanks so much for uh, taking the time to do the uh, podcast with me. And, uh, and I, I'm just going to apologize right now for uh, talking so much. It's as if I, I, I was vaccinated <laughs> with a phonograph needle. I normally, believe it or not, I normally don't talk that much. You just get me so excited about these topics that I couldn't resist. Thanks very much for that opportunity. See you, Ron. Thanks. Thanks.